the National Archives podcast series, Tracing Your Merchant Seaman Ancestors Through Crew Lists and Agreements, presented by Janet Dempsey. My name's Janet Dempsey. I'm a maritime record specialist with the um, Military Maritime and Transport Team here at the National Archives. One of my specialist areas is Merchant Navy Records. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of work on crew lists and agreements, so that's what I'm here to talk to you about today. Thank you for coming to find out more about one of the greatest sources that we actually have for family, maritime, social and economic history, the crew lists and agreements. Records of birth, marriages and death are created just once as the event actually happens. Census records are created once every 10 years and are currently only available up to 1911. And yet these have been the preferred tools of family historians for decades. The crew lists are created for every single voyage or for a six-month running period. And for those with a merchant navy ancestor, they can actually be used to document somebody's whole working life. The crew lists and agreements have been a very, very much underused source, but this is changing now thanks to the work done by the Crew List Index Project, us here at the National Archives, the National Maritime Museum, and the Maritime History Archive in Newfoundland, all to make these lists more accessible. So what are the crew lists and agreements? Although the format of the crew lists and agreements change over time, their purpose remains essentially the same. Firstly, they're very much more than just a list of the crew. The agreement part of the title is in relation to the articles set out at the front of the document. These articles were essentially law aboard the ship, and companies and masters could, and very often did, add to the printed articles on the document. These included such gems as the very practical advice regarding not smoking or having naked naked flames in the coal hold to being forbidden to swear on the Sabbath, all of which carried fines or risks of fire. When a man signed the articles, he was agreeing to be bound by those rules for the duration of the voyage, and therefore the document actually contains his original signature or mark if he wasn't literate. Okay, so that's what they are, but what do they show us? This is what they look like, and the information they actually give us include the name of the ship, The official number of the ship, which is important, because ships change names. They never, ever change number. The port of registry, tonnage, name and address of the ship owner, the articles that the seamen are expected to sign up to, the dates and place of voyage, and the master's signature and his name and the date that he actually signs the articles as well. Once inside the document we find a list of every single member of the crew. And the wealth of detail that you get on these documents include the name. Name in the first column is when he signs the articles. So this is prior to the voyage. His age, given either in years or as a date of birth, which take with a big pinch of salt, ladies and gentlemen, because merchant seamen are the biggest liars about their age. Okay, it gives you where he was born, his address when he is on shore or where he was staying at the time he signed the articles, the name and the year of his last ship. 
This information is very important as this is what will enable you to carry on tracing backwards until eventually you'll see an agreement that says first ship. Obviously, it's, it speaks for itself. Where and when the articles were signed. Capacity or quality. This is just basically how he's employed on the ship. The details of all his pay. And if he was an officer, details of any certificates that he held. Details of his discharge, including date, place and cause. And a second signature, this time on release. Usually a bit more wobbly than the first one. Okay, the crew list that we have here at the National Archives. Prior to 1860, all of the crew lists and agreements that survive are here, and they're all in series BT-98. For this series, it is vital to know the name of a ship and the port it was registered at, as these are how these records are arranged. From 1861 onwards, the records are split between 50-plus institutions, with 10% being held here at the National Archives in Series BT-99. These currently cover up to 1994. BT-100 is the series for celebrated ships, and any ship can find its way into this series for a wide variety of reasons. BT-380 cover the period 1939 to 1950 and are for allied and commandeered ships. The entire collection is at the National Archives. And BT-381 cover the same period and deal with ships employed on coastal trade and with the Irish Free State. Why they had to feel the need to split these series down, I don't know. So let's just have a look at these records in a little bit more detail. BT-98... Although it's listed in the catalogue as being from the late sort of 1700s, very little survives prior to 1835. Nominally, the series covers from 1747. If you do find anything between 1747 and 1835, you may not even get a list of the crew. What you may have is something along the lines of John Smith, master, plus 23 men. So if he's a master, you may get a name. If not, then don't hold out much hope. Following the Merchant Shipping Act of 1835, masters were required to keep crew lists in agreement and deposit them with the register, register office for merchant seamen at the end of the voyage. There is no actual easy way into these records. There are no indexes. They are all original documents and some of them are in a really, really poor state. Some of them resemble boxes of confetti. You have to know the name of a ship. The series is arranged primarily by year, then by port of registry. This can be found in Lloyd's registers, and not really anywhere else. And then it's by the first letter of the name of the ship. The second series of crew lists and agreement covers the period 1861 and currently runs up to 1994. It followed the enactment of the 1854 Merchant Shipping Act and allowed for the allocating of an official number to all seagoing vessels, meaning that even if a ship changed her name, she would still have an, a unique identifying number. This also allowed the Register General of Shipping and Seamen to file the crew list in numerical order rather than the rather clumsy arrangement that we've just seen demonstrated in BT-98. 
However, when it came for, to the time for the records to be transferred to the Public Record Office in the 1970s, we simply could not take in the sheer volume of records that had been created. We were looking at documents in their millions. Instead, we took a 10% sample, with the other 90% being scheduled for destruction. However, a movement of family historians, academic historians, archives and universities saved this 90% from destruction. The Maritime History Archive in Newfoundland were the biggest voice amongst this, but as a stalling tactic, the documents were offered to other institutions, the first of whom were the National Maritime Museum, who took about 10%, mostly with the year ending in five. So we went in and we sort of cherry-picked our 10%, and they went in then and took everything ending with the year five and a few oddities as well. Then, as a further stalling tactic, they were offered up to local record officers. As I mentioned at the beginning, some 50-odd institutions took up this offer, and they are mostly ports that have some connection with that ship. So it would be either the ship worked out of that port, it was registered at that port, or it ended up as that was its final port before it was broken up. So they took between 5 and 10%. These are catalogued locally. There's no central catalogue of these. The remainder, about 70 to 75%, were then shipped across the North Atlantic in six containers to Newfoundland. A lot of people raise an eyebrow when they find out that such a large proportion of British crew lists are actually in Canada. A search on discovery for items in BT-99 is much more straightforward. Enter the ship's number and restrict your search to BT-99. The search can be further restricted by adding a year. BT-100. It's a series dedicated to celebrated ships. Celebrated can mean famous, as in the Queen Elizabeth, infamous, as in the Lusitania, Sunk, as per the Titanic. Famous for having a maiden voyage which ended when she hit an iceberg. Or Lancastria, who was blasted by German aircraft while evacuating troops from France. Or, as a significant part of history, such as the ship Fiery Cross, which took part in the Great Tea Race of 1866. What I'm trying to get over to you here is that this series is completely subjective. And if you don't find a ship which you think should be in there do have a look in the other series as well. All of the series BT100 is held at the National Archives, but only the piece for Titanic is available online. Celebrated ships can be searched by name on Discovery. You just type in the ship's name, restrict the search to BT100. I'll deal with BT380 and 381 together. They are series that are unique to the Second World War period and just beyond. BT380 a mixture of numbered ships and ships starting with the first letter of a name. If they're non-British ships, they won't have a number. So if they're requisitioned for war service, they'll be in there by the first letter of the name, ALA BT-98. BT-381 are numbered ships, with only a very small section of named ships at the end of the series. These named ships at the end of the series are largely provisional registrations, um, very small ships or ships that have been deregistered and they're being taken to be broken up. 
all of the records for BT 380 and 381 are at the National Archives. It's also possible, because of the nature of the split in this series, that ships that appear in BT 380 for one voyage can be in BT 381 for another. As I mentioned earlier, not all of the crew lists are here. Between 5 and 10% of the list went to local record officers, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of them. The general rule of thumb is what is in local offices relate to the ship as an entity rather than any sort of maritime law. If the ship was owned, broken up, worked locally, there's a possibility it's there. To find out where those archives are, you need to consult the National Register of Archives. And to do this, you go to the National Archives website first. And I do apologise because this is a very clumsy way of, of getting into this. You need to click on Records and then find the tab for Catalogues and Online Records. This then takes you to a list of other indexes that are supported on the National Archives website. You then need to scroll through until you find National Ar Register of Archives and click on the link. Just to explain, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the National Register of Archives, they are part of the National Archives, but they're responsible for archives outside of this building. They're responsible for standard of archiving throughout the country, and part of that responsibility includes keeping track of holdings. A consequence of this is where the archive have catalogued something well we can actually search those holdings of those archives through our website. Once you're on the National Register of Archive pages, you need to click on Corporate Search. Instead of entering a search term, look at the bottom of the screen to Advanced Search of the Organisations Index. Click on this, which will then take you to the next page. In the category box, Click the drop-down menu and select Government Central. In the subcategory, click on Register General of Shipping and Seamen. Then click Search. I did say it was long-winded. Okay, this then produces a list of all 122 archives who hold records of the Register General of Shipping and Seamen. Not all of these records have crew lists. So what you would need to do is select the archive you want... And this takes you then to the details of that record office, including a link to their own website and catalogues. Please do note, though, that the standard of cataloguing varies enormously from office to office, and it may be necessary to contact the office directly to inquire whether they do hold crew lists or not. Thankfully, finding the records that are held elsewhere is a lot more straightforward and none more so than the records held by the Maritime History Archive in Newfoundland. Their web address, www.mun.ca forward slash mha forward slash holdings forward slash search combined crew list dot php will take you to their search page. Their site is searchable by ship's number only. It is relatively easy to get hold of a ship's number, provided you have the name, of course. The National Archives Discovery Service will often give you a ship's number if you type in the name. We've catalogued a lot of ships by both number and name. If you restrict the search to BT, obviously that makes it a lot easier. You can check the Crew List Index Project website. Sometimes a simple Google search will come up trumps. 
Failing all of that, you need the published Lloyd's List, which should be available via your local library. They're available here at the National Archives, and they can provide the information you want. Once you've typed in the number and clicked search, you will be taken to the results page. And this page lists all the years for which the Maritime History Archive has a crew list. The code next to the year represents what type of crew list it is, whether it's home trade, foreign trade, whether or not there's a logbook present. A glossary of what the codes mean is available by clicking on the link on the same page. The Caird Library and Archive at the National Maritime Museum Greenwich also has an online catalogue via the website. Their web address, http forward slash forward slash collections dot rmg.co.uk will lead you into their catalogue. At the moment, this is very much a work in progress and the majority of the results will return you crew lists for the Cutty Sarkin for 1915 for reasons which will soon be explained. The easiest way to find out if they have a crew list is if the year ends in five and we haven't got it, they will have it. So how do we get into the crew list? Obviously, as the crew lists are arranged by ship, you do still need a ship's name to get into these records. If you have an ancestor who was on board a merchant ship, you may well be in possession of discharge books or certificates. If he was an officer, you may well have copies of certificates of competency. And if your ancestor happened to be caught up in some mishap at sea, then there could be newspaper reports. If you have the name of a ship already, your route into the crew list is easy. If you don't have the name of a ship, it's more difficult. As a lot of you will already know, there's a black hole in the Merchant Navy records between 1856 and 1918. Many researchers simply cannot find the records of an individual, and the crew lists are the only option open to them. However, if you don't know the name of a ship, previously you would have just hit a brick wall there. But there are now major projects underway making your search a little bit easier. And amongst these are the Crew List Index Project. This is run by a couple from North Wales who have done a momentous job of indexing the crew lists held at local record offices. There's also the 1881 and 1891 projects. There's the 1915 project, National Archives and National Maritime Museum. And I'll just explain a little bit more about these. The Crew List Index Project is a volunteer project run by Jan and Pete Owens and an army of volunteer transcribers. They've indexed the crew lists and agreements held by county record officers, not the big institutions, the smaller institutions, part of that 122 we saw on the search for National Register of Archives. They cover the period from 1861 through to 1913, and their work in all these transcriptions are now available through Find My Past. If you actually um, Google Crew List and Index Project and it takes you into their website, that is a very good way of getting a ship's number from a name or vice versa. Many researchers only actually know they have Merchant Navy ancestors because of the census, so it made sense to approach the problem of not having a ship from the direction of the reason for looking for it in the first place. To that end, the National Archives took the decision to index all of the names in the 1881 census with the help of the Crew List Index Project. This made the transcription of over 4,000 crew lists 
available through the National Archives Discovery. The Maritime History Archive saw what we were doing, thought it was a very good idea, and followed suit. And currently they have about 84,000 names searchable on their website, with more being added all the time. Following on from the success of the 1881 National Archives project, we engaged the help of CLIP again and transcribed the 3,000-plus crew lists for 1891. What that means is that all of the information for mariners who were at sea for 1881 and 1891 in our 10% sample is fully name-searchable on Discovery for free. The web address, www.mun.ca forward slash mha forward slash 1881 forward slash cruise1881.php will enable you to search any one of those 84,000 names that I've just mentioned. The 1915 Project. In 2010, the National Archives, i.e. me, approached the National Maritime Museum with a proposal to transcribe all the crew lists and agreements held by both institutions for 1915. The reasons for this were firstly, because of the way the crew lists were split up on transfer, all of the lists for 1915 are in just two locations, both of them in this country and both of them not a million miles apart. Secondly, staff at both institutions receive regular inquiries about ancestors who served in World War I, but are unable to help because the name of a ship just isn't known. With the anniversary of World War I up and coming, it seemed only right to mark the contribution of the fourth service in some way. Once complete, the project will make about one and a half million names from about 39,000 crew lists name searchable. And it will all be free via both institutions' websites. About 4% of these records are already searchable online, with more being added all the time. The due date for this project to be finished is August 2014. So now you've found where your crew list is, you have it eagerly held in front of you, and suddenly all the excitement evaporates because you realise you can't read the thing. Fear not. Those wonderful people at the Maritime History Archive have come up trumps. They've recently created a website totally dedicated to crew lists and agreements. Once again, if you want to make a note of www.mun.ca forward slash MHA forward slash MLC forward slash. Amongst the tools on the website are Google style Juno buttons feature to help you enable you to decipher the information given on the crew lists and agreements. You simply hover your mouse over them and it brings up a little pop-up box with the information. There is also a feature to help you decipher the often very difficult handwriting. And there's some nice glossaries of terms found in the crew lists, including a list of occupations. Many of you will be relieved to know that the donkey man was not responsible for looking after the ship's equine mascot. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your patience, and I do hope that you've found this useful. This talk was recorded on the 15th of August 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.